If you love Snapped, Women Who Murder, you're going to love listening to true crime or mystery titles on Audible. The audio title I'm diving into again is one of my favorites to revisit, Mindhunter by John Douglas and Mark Ulshaker. Even if you think you know the details of the cases, former FBI unit chief John Douglas took on from documentaries or the scripted show, the audio title goes above and beyond in bringing you along with him in his career, trying to catch serial killers and serial perpetrators. He used psychological profiling to dive into the minds of notorious criminals. The title includes his hunt for a killer in Alaska, the Green River Killer, and so much more. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. It is the home of storytelling after all. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash snapped or text snapped to 500-500. That's audible.com slash snapped or text snapped to 500-500. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. After failed marriages and false starts, they found love on a thousand acres of Mississippi farmland. He was just a wealthy country boy. She kind of worked alongside him at the farm. And I think that is what bonded them. They always said how much they loved each other. It was all happy times and happy memories. But one cold January night brings a horrific tragedy right to their front door. He went out to smoke and she heard a loud bang. He had a pretty good puddle of blood underneath himself. As detectives dive into a whirlwind investigation, twisted motives surface from those closest to home. There was $8,000 in cash under the mattress. Don't make no bones about it. Me and my father did not get along. She had in her head they were getting married. He had actually told her that if she kept pushing, that he was going to make her leave. You wouldn't know the trailer was there unless you had been there. There would have been a planned event to go up there. And an unbreakable bond is stretched to its limit. That was the worst thing she's ever had to tell anybody in her life. I cannot go to prison for nothing that I know 100% in my heart I did not do. I did not do anything wrong. January 20th, 2009, Pearl River County, Mississippi. It's a rural area, uh, pretty desolate. A lot of farms out that way. As we say here, it's out in the country, but it's a beautiful area. It's half past midnight when a 911 call breaks the silence of this quiet community. Our dispatch center received uh, an emergency call uh, from a female. The woman identifies herself as 46-year-old Barbara Cameron. 
She claims she has just discovered her boyfriend, 61-year-old Clyde Daniels, unconscious outside their trailer. She was very frantic, uh, made comment about hearing a noise, and then she found Clyde, the victim. Clyde Daniels had a gunshot wound to his head on the front porch of his residence. She had hidden herself in a back room because she was scared. So we dispatched deputies to the scene. They arrived and noticed that at that location, there was a, a, a gate blocking the driveway. So they walked from the gate to the residence. When deputies carefully approach the trailer, they immediately detect a body lying at the top of the front porch steps. A couple of deputies arrived on scene, went up, found a white male, here to be deceased, laying on the, uh, the porch of this trailer. He was wearing slippers, pajama pants, and, uh, and a bathrobe. Miss Cameron, she was in the house and would not come out until she saw a flashlight from the officers. She said that Clyde, what she referred to as her husband, even though they weren't married, had been shot. What happened? Who shot Clyde? Born in 1947 in Picayune, Mississippi, Clyde Daniels' dreams were always bigger than his humble upbringing. My dad was uh, was kind of a adventurous fellow and uh, an entrepreneur from a very young age. And uh, as soon as he could get away from there, he did. That's why he joined the Navy. And that's where he met my mother. Over the years, Clyde and his wife, Linda, had two children, Chip and Sheila. Following his stint in the Navy, Clyde and Linda settled back in Pearl River County, where he was always on the lookout for an opportunity. We had a backhoe business. We had a motocross racetrack, which was a lot of fun. I mean, he was kind of into a little bit of everything. Clyde moved from one venture to another, and after 17 years, he was also ready to move on from Linda to a new woman named Maureen Daspit. He met Maureen while she was playing pool. They were playing pool together, and he left my mom for Maureen. In 1981, Clyde married Maureen and went on to have two more children, Cassie and Dustin. Together, Clyde and Maureen embarked on yet another business endeavor. My parents started an Amway business in 1985, and they uh, were actually became very successful. They sell a lot of like health and wellness and home supplies and things like that. He went from country boy to suit and top. And then as the Amway picked up and got more lucrative, he got more and more and more until he was just a wealthy man. Through Amway, Clyde and Maureen made new friends, including fellow saleswoman, Barbara Cameron. Barbara and her husband, Clifton, were friends of the family. They were actually uh, on our team in the Amway business. When Barbara and her husband divorced, Clyde offered her a new opportunity. 
We hired Barbara to clean the house and such as that, help us around the place and all. By October 2001, Clyde was once again looking for a new challenge. He handed Amway over to his wife, Maureen, and took a new job as a caretaker of a sprawling, idyllic thousand-acre farm. The farm is owned by a couple of gentlemen out of New Orleans, businessmen, and they actually hire people to uh, uh, as caretakers for the farm. All of his bills were paid. Everything was paid. He had company trucks, and they paid him a lot of money to do what he did. With his new lifestyle came the realization that his marriage to Maureen was over. My dad started working on the Ogden farm probably around the time that things really were getting rough between my mom and my dad. So I think that that was kind of maybe even one of the reasons he took that job was it was kind of a, an escape. In 2002, Clyde and Maureen separated, and he moved into a trailer nestled in a patch of woods on the beautiful farm. Barbara was kind of like a farmhand, and she was helping with the horses, and it just became flirtatious. They started dating. There was a lot of work to do, and we had actually been discussing trying to find some decent help. And she was actually kind of a perfect candidate. Barbara really was a hard worker. So she kind of worked alongside my dad, um, especially at the farm. And I think that working alongside each other is what bonded them. We had the whole, this is why it makes sense for us to, for her to move in with us type conversation. You know, they're doing what couples do, boyfriend and girlfriend. Barbara, Clyde, and his son, Dustin, were all living and working on the farm. Three of us in uh, just absolutely beautiful place. And we had a lot of fun, a lot of fun out there. And, you know, it was all happy times and happy memories. After a few years, Dustin moved on and Barbara's son, Max, took his place. After my brother moved out, um, there was a time where Max actually was the laborer, basically the farmhand. By 2009, after seven years together, 61-year-old Clyde and 46-year-old Barbara were leading a simple but satisfying life on the farm. But the events of the night of January 20th, 2009, would tear them apart forever. After receiving a frantic call from Barbara, deputies find Clyde dead on the front porch of his trailer. His feet were closest to the door. There was blood spatter on the roof line and on the wall. He had a pretty good puddle of blood underneath himself. There was a silver 45410. It's a silo pistol uh, made by Taurus. The proximity of the gun to Clyde's body has investigators questioning whether Clyde took his own life. But a closer look quickly reveals the answer. 
it appeared that he had two gunshot wounds. One looked like it was uh, to his chin, and another was behind his right ear. It was determined this was, in fact, not a suicide, but a homicide. Coming up, investigators uncover a hidden motive. Clive didn't trust banks. He kept his money hidden. There was $30,000 in cash buried in a PVC pipe in the backyard. And a suspect with strong ties to the victim emerges. He came and asked his father for money, and Clyde told him, hell no. Every time I think about it, it feels like it just happened. Hard-working couple Barbara Cameron and Clyde Daniels found a peaceful life as the caretakers of a thousand-acre farm in Pearl River County, Mississippi. It was already a beautiful property. I mean, just, just hundreds and hundreds of, of huge live oaks and red oaks. They definitely seemed happy together. They kind of had, you know, spent all their time together. But now, investigators are standing over Clyde's dead body, wondering who could have wanted the happy farmhand dead. We realized what we were looking at, uh, that this was indeed a, a, a murder. But there's no reason that could be explained why Clyde was killed. As investigators process the scene, it's clear the gun resting next to Clyde is curiously not the murder weapon. I started looking at the revolver, and I could tell that all the rounds in the cylinder, as well as the one that was in the barrel, were not shot. Investigators need to determine if the gun is Clyde's, and why he would carry it so late at night. You wouldn't know the trailer was there unless you had been there. This isn't something that someone would have stumbled across, so it's not something we consider to be just a, someone randomly walked up there with the intention of committing a robbery or anything like that. It would have been a planned event to go up there. Detectives hope Clyde's girlfriend, Barbara, can shed more light on what happened. She would break down and cry. She'd be in tears uh, for a short time. Then she would compose herself and we would go on. They had been together for about seven years at that time, and they were talking about getting married. So, you know, it appeared that her emotions were you know, what I would expect uh, for someone who just uh, lost their significant other. Barbara tells detectives that they'd spent the evening watching TV together as usual. It was a little after midnight, maybe 12, 12.30, that they decided to go to bed. So he went out to smoke uh, his last cigarette of the day. Barbara says when Clyde stepped outside, he took two things with him, his cigarettes and his gun. She made comment to the effect that uh, Mr. Daniels doesn't go anywhere without a firearm. He'd get up every night about the same time and step outside, smoke to a, his last cigarette. Well, every time he did that, he'd carry a sidearm with him. He enjoyed having guns. So I'm not going to say it would be out of character for him to have a gun on the porch. They had recently had some issues with some hunting dogs. If he saw or heard the hunting dogs around, he'd fire some shots in the air. 
uh, just to try to scare them off. So he went out to smoke and uh, she was going to take a shower. And she said she went in and entered the shower and no sooner got her hair wet than she heard a, a loud bang. She got out of the shower immediately and, and put her bathrobe on. As she walked to the door to check on Clyde, when she opened the door, she could see that Clyde was laying on the porch right in front of the door. And that's when she said that she looked out and looked down the uh, driveway, saw two white males walking down the driveway. That's when she panicked, ran, grabbed the phone, and she said that she dialed 911. Barbara says she remained in the back bedroom until law enforcement arrived. I asked her if she had gone out to check on Clyde after she saw that he had been shot or she suspected that he had been shot. She said, well, I was scared, so I closed and locked the door and went back in the bedroom uh, and called 911. I was too scared to go out. Detectives ask Barbara what the two mystery men might have been after. She said that I have to tell you that there's quite a bit of money here. She said, come here, and we walked back to the bedroom, walked back there, and she lifted the corner of the mattress, and there was, uh, I think, what turned out to be uh, $8,000 in cash under the mattress. She also said that there was uh, $30,000 in cash uh, buried in a PVC pipe in the backyard. And I asked her what was with all the cash. Clyde didn't trust banks. He kept his money hidden, kept things hidden. She said that uh, they had been saving money because Clyde was diagnosed with emphysema, and he didn't think he had that long left. So he wanted to make sure that he had saved up $100,000 between the two of them to leave to her. As for who might have been after the cash, Barbara tells detectives that a couple of people come to mind. She told me that the, this employee, Dion, uh, worked with Clyde and that they had caught him stealing diesel fuel from the farm. The other person Barbara names is Clyde's own son, 38-year-old Chip Daniels. November of 08, he came and asked his father for money and uh, he didn't give it to him. And he came back again and asked him uh, again a second time. She said Clyde told him hell no. Though Barbara's story is compelling, why had Clyde's attackers left so much money behind? When speaking to Miss Cameron, she couldn't show any evidence of any money stolen, no real attempt at a robbery. Things seemed forced. It was very inconsistent, her demeanor toward her emotions. As investigators work to track down Chip and Dion, news of Clyde's death reaches his family. I found out that it was a homicide. I had no even, you know, minute ideal of who might have wanted to have done that to. I mean, everybody loved my dad. I mean, he's a great guy. I get a phone call, and I just dropped from home. I was at my mom's. I mean, it just it feels like it just happened. It 
every time I think about it, it feels like it just happened. I mean, that's not a phone call you expect to get. While the family grieves, investigators track down former farmhand Dion Inman and bring him in for questioning. We interviewed Dion. We just didn't get any kind of indication from him that, that he was a, a viable suspect. Dion also has an alibi. He lived with his parents still and that they were able to support the fact that he was home with them during, during that time. He could not have been at the scene during the time that this occurred, so he alibied out. With Dion ruled out, investigators turned to their other suspect, Clyde's own son, Chip Daniels. Chip had so much animosity against my father. My first thought was Chip finally just looked out and did it. Coming up, detectives attempt to recreate the night of the murder. We knew then that even the story we suspected initially was not the truth. And as police retrace their steps, they notice signs of suspicion. She was so nervous. Her knees were weak. She was having trouble walking. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery, code Wondery. Bravo's The Real Housewives of New Jersey a little zap, 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 zap. is all new. How is Teresa handling you becoming friends with Melissa? And conflict. That's who you want to associate yourself with? Runs in the family. I really don't want to answer any questions about Teresa. I'm going to have to rethink this. Strap in. You're bully. Don't poke the bear. For a bumpy ride. I see your true colors. You're dirty. Everybody was right about you. In all new The Real Housewives of New Jersey, every Sunday at 8 on Bravo and streaming on Peacock. In January 2009, detectives in Pearl River County, Mississippi, are looking into the shooting death of 61-year-old Clyde Daniels. Following an interview with Clyde's girlfriend, Barbara, police are eager to talk to his son, 38-year-old Chip Daniels. Chip was presented to us as a suspect by Barbara. Detectives work quickly to bring Chip in for an interview. I told him, you tell me what you need, and I will definitely make sure you get it, because I had nothing to do with it. Though Chip is quick to maintain his innocence, detectives want to know more about the argument Barbara witnessed between him and his father a few months earlier. I said, don't make no bones about it. Me and my father did not get along. But uh, as far as killing him goes, no. I, I, I don't have that in me. I mean, I couldn't kill anybody. Chip tells detectives he wasn't even in Pearl River County on the night his father was killed. I was at a motel in Picayune when the night of his murder. And, you know, I had 
there was many witnesses that seen me even at the time that my father was killed. They had surveillance. I was all over camera. We followed up, we checked alibis, and we were able to alibi him. We were able to rule him out. With Chip and Dion cleared, detectives circle back to the woman who dialed 911 that fateful night, 46-year-old Barbara Cameron. It really did at some point, it kind of seemed like Barbara was trying to get us looking in different directions. It just didn't seem right, you know. It just didn't make sense to me. Her statement that she saw the two alleged suspects that she suspected had just shot her fiance had just walked off and she didn't go to check on me. Even if initially she was scared, uh, it just seems odd that she would stay back in that bedroom all that time just not knowing, you know, what's happened to my soon-to-be husband. There was no other attempt to steal anything. There was nothing missing. All those things were, were unusual and uh, certainly left us scratching our heads. Detectives ask Barbara to come in for another interview, though this time they take a different approach. We had asked her if she would uh, consent to a polygraph. So she came here, she was in the lobby. The examiner came in, he got all his equipment set up. We went out to the lobby to get her to bring her back into the, uh, the room where the test was gonna be conducted. And I mean, she was so nervous. Just kind of flush, you know, pale color. Her knees were weak. She was having trouble walking. She was to such a point we were unable to do the polygraph on her. With Barbara incapable of answering their questions, detectives returned to the trailer where Clyde was murdered. We decided that we would take Barbara's statement and her description of the scene, where she was, what she heard, what happened, we, de we decided to try and reenact. We actually had an investigator get into the shower, turn the water on, so forth, as we had other investigators, one playing uh, the decedent Clyde, you know, on the porch and, you know, other investigators as the bad guy, if you will. We set that up and then we, we gave the cue of these loud bangs, the two bad guys, if you will. They were just walking, there was no running. I mean, we tried to make this as accurate as we could just to see if it was even plausible. She gets out exactly as she says, got her robe on, walks to the, uh, to the, front, of the, the front of the trailer where Barbara says she looked down the road and the officers had already walked out of sight. We knew then that even the story we suspected initially was not the truth. You know, it just confirmed our belief through those reenactments. Detectives are certain that there's more to Barbara's story than what she's sharing with police. Hoping to gather intel on Clyde and Barbara's relationship, investigators reach out to Clyde's kids. He had told us that Barbara was pushing him really hard to get married. And he had told her no many times. 
and he had actually told her that if she kept pushing, that he was going to make her leave. That they could live as boyfriend and girlfriend, or she could leave. According to Clyde's children, no matter how firm he stood, Barbara continued to push. He was adamant he was not marrying that woman. When he made up his mind, that was the end of that. And uh, she had it in her head they were getting married. Clyde's kids tell detectives that there was another bone of contention between Clyde and Barbara, Barbara's son, Max Weldon. He used to work for my father on the farm, and he thought because, you know, my father and his mother was together that he could just bum around. They were kind of at odds a little bit over Max. I think she wanted him close to her, and he didn't want him around. It did cause some conflict between the two. Clyde's kids say this isn't the first time Max has been caught up in a deadly investigation. Max had been involved in some kind of a shooting uh, where a person was killed up in Yazoo County. It was ruled self-defense and the charges were dismissed against him. That was unusual. We didn't really know anything about that case, but certainly you gotta wonder. So we speculated that Max may be a player in Clyde's murder. Then Barbara, we suspected, in fact, she was very involved in what went on there. Hoping for answers, detectives subpoena phone records from both Barbara and her 26-year-old son, Max Weldon. If there's multiple people involved in a uh, homicide, oftentimes they try and communicate Obviously, in modern age, we all use cell phones. While they wait for the records to come in, detectives make another attempt at getting the truth out of Barbara. On January 28th, we had scheduled Barbara to come in for uh, a second attempt at the uh, polygraph test. Coming up, Barbara holds her ground. He was never going to marry you. You know he was never going to marry yes, you, Barbara. Yes, he Says was. you. And loyalties are put to the test. You close enough to her, though, Mac, to go to prison rescue life, life on yep. after her 61-year-old boyfriend was found murdered in Mississippi, 46-year-old Barbara Cameron has just arrived at the Pearl River County Sheriff's Office for her rescheduled polygraph exam. She, in fact, took the polygraph. There were four questions, that I understand, that were asked by the polygrapher. Those questions were, did you plan with anyone to shoot Clyde? Number two was, did you shoot Clyde? Number three was, do you know for a fact who shot Clyde? And number four, uh, did you tamper with anything at the scene of Clyde's death? I spoke with the examiner following the test, and he had indicated that she had failed the test. She had a very strong reaction to, did you plan with anyone to shoot Clyde? Obviously, that raised some red flags. 
When detectives confront Barbara about the results, she stands by her innocence. When she failed the polygraph, she still stuck to it. It's not me, it's the machine. When detectives ask Barbara about Max, she says the only contact she had with him on the night of the murder was a single brief phone call. She said that she had talked to her son, Max. I believe she said that was around maybe 6.30 or so that evening. Though detectives suspect Barbara isn't telling the truth, they will need more than a failed polygraph to arrest her. We believe in them, we use them, and uh, it's a great tool but it's not admissible in court. It's not until January 30th, 10 days after Clyde's murder, that detectives finally catch the break they need. Barbara's cell phone records had come in. And at the time of the murder, or near that time around the murder, she had made many phone calls to her son, Max which went directly against what she had told us the day before, that uh, she had only talked to her son one time. I mean, they're, they're talking right up until, you know, the 911 calls made. What reason did she have to try and hide those conversations? Was something going on in those conversations she didn't want us to know about? When detectives pull Max's phone records, suspicions continue to mount. It seems Max had traveled from Yazoo County to Pearl River County on the night of the murder, arriving within an hour of Barbara's 911 call. This absolutely tracked him beautifully. From Yazoo County, that absolutely showed a beautiful line. We know he's in the area by the pinging from the phone, but they do not ping him at that location. Despite the fact that he can't be tracked to the exact location of the murder, it's enough evidence to secure an arrest warrant. On February 17th, based on cellular location evidence, we received arrest warrants for both Barbara and Max uh, for the charge of murder. We went and found Max and Barbara were both actually at Barbara's home. With Max in police custody, detectives are finally able to get his version of events. What about uh, the night that Clyde was killed? Where, where were you that night? I was with my wife. He said he was in Yazoo County the night that Clyde was killed. He had spent the night with his ex-wife or estranged wife uh, that night, and he was there all night. Then they hit him with the cell phone records and said, we've got you in that area. And he absolutely vehemently denied that he was in the area, did not understand that. Cellular South assured us that there is no other explanation other than your phone was used and hit on that tower in that location. So what do y'all... Who had your phone? I've had my phone in there. Yes, I keep my phone there. They were very astute to ask him, did anybody have your phone that day? Did you loan your phone out? He said, no, I had my phone with me all day. You have it that night? Yeah, I mean, nobody used my phone, it was me. Detectives turn up the heat. You close enough to her though, Mac, to go to prison rescue live, to live phone? No. I'm telling you, why ain't it something? 
That's where you're headed if you don't tell us the truth about this. Why would I go to prison? Because we got your phone in Poppyville at the time of Clyde's death. You playing something? You said nobody uses your phone but you? When Max refuses to budge, detectives turn to Barbara. 1226. Two minutes before you dialed 911, you talked to Max for 40 seconds. About 15 minutes before you dialed 911, you talked to Max for 74 seconds. I don't remember calling Max. But there's 13 conversations here. Um, you didn't, uh, you never mentioned these conversations in any of our previous interviews. No, I... You forgot them all, I think? Yeah. You know what you did. You know Yeah, I know exactly what, what I did. I went in there to take a you shower and I heard the big bang. When their interview with Barbara stalls, investigators take a different approach, calling Barbara and Clyde's relationship into question. He was never going to marry you. You know he was never going to marry yes, he you, was. Barbara. Yes, he Says was. you. Him and I talked about it. Barbara refuses to waver. You're going to live with this for the rest of your life? Are you going to live? With I did not do anything wrong. Without a confession from Max or Barbara, investigators need to bolster their case. They decide to pay a visit to Max's estranged wife, Mandy, in Yazoo County. She said he'd been working on a water heater and was there uh, with her. They had been somewhat estranged and were trying to get back together. But when pressed, her story changes. She was told by Max to lie to us, to lie to police, uh, to give him an alibi that night, uh, that he was with her the whole night. And, uh, you know, when pressed about it, she said, no, he asked me to lie. He was not here. He left. Armed with this information, detectives head back to the station. But before they can question Max once again, he has a change of heart. He said, look, I need to talk to the officers again. Coming up, Max does an about face. I cannot go to prison for nothing that I know 100% in my heart I did not do. And a hidden motive becomes crystal clear. I love my mother, but she does like money. Sitting in a holding cell, 46-year-old Barbara Cameron continues to deny plotting with her 26-year-old son, Max Weldon, to kill her boyfriend, Clyde Daniels. But less than 24 hours after their arrests, Max has decided he is ready to talk. I cannot go to prison for nothing that I know 100% in my heart I did not do. Max tells detectives that on the night of the murder, his mother asked him to come pick her up because she and Clyde had been fighting. She said, well, just come get me. I said, okay, mom, I'm gonna come down there and get you. So he drove down here that night and he stopped at a church. Max says he waited at the nearby church for his mother to call him back. But when she finally called, what she had to say left him in shock. She said he wouldn't let me leave. I said, what did you do? 
She said, I shot him. Max tells detectives he immediately hightailed it out of Pearl River County. I went back home. I caught her when I was on the highway. I think that was 12 something. And I said, why, why, what did you do? Why? And she just says he wouldn't let me leave. But you drove three hours to come check on your mom, but no, you didn't I go check on her. three hours to come get her. And when she had called me and told but you me didn't what she it. had done, I, re I realized I needed to get the hell out of there. As for why Barbara killed Clyde, Max speculates that it might have had more to do with his stockpiles of cash than the argument they were allegedly having. I really don't know why. I mean, to be honest, if you want to be honest, I love my mother, but she does like money. Detectives aren't sure if Max is telling the truth or covering for himself once again. To find out, they decide to confront Barbara with her son's confession. I said, Barbara, are you just going to tell us the same old lie you've been telling us? And she said, no. And I sat back a little surprised and asked her to go ahead and tell us the truth about what happened. Barbara says she'd grown tired of her relationship with Clyde. I could not put up with him. telling me I couldn't go places. I couldn't see my grandbabies. He said, you do as I say. And I just got tired of it. So I called Max that day. And I asked him, would he? And I told him where the gun was at. She told me that she talked Max into killing Clyde for her. She left one of Clyde's 357 revolvers in a shed behind their mobile home for Max. I told him I didn't go outside all the time to smoke with him. He knew that anyway. And uh, I was supposed to go take me a bath. I called Max, started and I was supposed to get a bath, and he was going outside for the last one. So it seemed that that gave Max a chance to get in place and assassinate Clyde. Barbara said that after Clyde was killed, she walked to the front door and she handed Max $1,000 cash, literally over Clyde's dead body, and put it in Max's hand. And he left on his way back to Yazoo County. I could see it in her face, in her eyes, in her tone. Uh, that was the worst thing she's ever had to tell anybody in her life. Um, and it was apparent. So what she told us fit all of the physical evidence that we had. Based on Barbara's statement, prosecutors revised the charges against Max. When she said that there was money paid, $1,000 was paid by her to uh, Max, that elevated the capital murder in this state. In March 2011, Barbara agrees to testify against her son. 
But when prosecutor Hal Kittrell brings her in for a pretrial interview, Barbara has one final surprise in store. Barbara recanted, changed her, her story to the fact that Max was not involved. Prosecutors have no choice but to release Max and drop the charges. There just was not enough to get a conviction. As for Barbara, on Tuesday, March 29, 2011, she pleads guilty to murder and is sentenced to life in prison. She didn't want to go to trial because she didn't want to face the courtroom, the jury. She didn't want to tell the story. Justice was kind of only half served is the way I feel about it, but not at their fault. Just, you know, I mean, the way it goes. Whether Barbara shot Clyde herself or worked with an accomplice, the bottom line is clear. Barbara robbed Clyde Daniels of his life. I really miss my dad, and I'm really sad he was taken so suddenly. Losing a parent, whether to sickness or tragically, is hard. It takes years to get over it. And the more time that passes, the more fond of memories are of them. I try not to think about what his last moments were like. I just hope that, you know, the shock maybe outweighed the terror. I wasn't able to spend the amount of time that I wanted to spend with him. I don't know that it'll ever be completely healed. So it's, it's just, I think, a process that may never end. Max Walden's ex-wife, Mandy, was never charged with any crime in connection to this case. Barbara Cameron is currently serving her time at the Central Mississippi Correctional Facility. No further arrests have been made in the case, and it remains open. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.